Hey, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you would be turning to Psalm 72. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me just catch us up with a couple of things. Uh, remember from last week as we talked about Psalm chapter 2, that Psalms 1 and 2 serve essentially as the introduction to the Psalter. And so if you want to understand anything that's being, or not, I shouldn't say anything, but most of what's being said in the Psalms, you've got to have a rich understanding of those two Psalms. Uh, and Psalm 72 is actually the culmination or, or the fulfillment, actually, of Psalms 1 and 2 in the person of this king that we're going to hear about. And interestingly, Psalm 72 concludes the second book of the Psalms. I don't have enough time this morning to help us understand why the Psalms are broken up into five books, so I'll commend two resources to you. The first is called The Flow of the Psalms by O. Palmer Robertson. It's an excellent book on understanding the overarching, uh, how the Psalms are laid out and what each of the books uh, mean and entail. Another resource is called Transformed by Praise by Mark Futado. He was my seminary professor that taught us the book of Psalms. He's brilliant, and that's a very readable book, uh, and it's not very long. The flow of the Psalms is a little bit thicker and intimidating from just appearances, but Transformed by Praise is, is much easier to read, I think, overall, uh, and will help your study of the Psalms tremendously. I commend both of those resources to you. But this psalm does conclude uh, the second book book of the Psalms. And it's got an interesting heading that, that scholars have argued about. It's, it's, it says, of Solomon or for Solomon. And so they don't know if David wrote it for Solomon as he was going to be installed as king, and this is his hope for Solomon and his reign, or if Solomon wrote it much like uh, he did his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 3 where he prays for wisdom. Either way, uh, what we're going to discover is the psalm really is not about any of those kings. That no earthly king could actually fulfill what Psalm 72 longs for. That only the king that God would choose, that God would set up, as it says in Psalm chapter 2, on his holy hill, Zion, according to his law, to reign in the way that is just and righteous. Only that king, we know to be Jesus, can actually fulfill Psalm 72. But it is the hope uh, that concludes the second book of the Psalter. And so having said that, uh, I want to ask you a question real quick uh, that I think is important and something that we ought to really think about. Uh, and from young to old, because uh, from young to old, we submit ourselves to leaders of various kinds, don't we? And we have opinions about everyone around us, which is, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, and, and so what are the critical qualities of the leaders that you respect? Of, of the ones that you really you, you think a lot of, uh, whether it's a historical figure or someone that you currently work for or have worked for or a teacher or someone, what, what was it about them that you respected most? Now, quick show of hands, how many of you would say, of the leaders I really respect, uh, they're, they're tyrants? No Hitler fans, Stalin, Lenin, no? Yeah, and why not? Why do you not, why is that not the kind of leader that you respect? Why is tyranny not one of the key qualities of those you want over you? In fact, uh, children, how many of you like it when your parents are tyrannical? or your teachers are tyrannical, right? It's just not a quality that we respect. And what, what are some of the hallmarks of tyranny? Justice, right? They're always fair. How many of you say this 
it's not fair. Right? That's always, always kind of the, the charge against tyranny uh, is that's not fair. Well, well there, oftentimes there's no real justice to them. In fact, they're incredibly inconsistent in who it is that they fight for and who it is they support. And oftentimes it's whoever props them up. It has nothing to do with the greater good of the people. So note that inherently you have within you a, a, a desire for those who lead over you to be just and righteous, which we'll get more into in just a moment. I mean, we, we don't uh, and would not want to admit that tyranny uh, is, is something that we find respectable. But here's an even better question. Of the leaders that you do, in fact, respect, and, and, and you see their qualities as good, um, do those qualities actually reflect the glory and the attributes of God? Because if they, if they don't, you probably are on track for tyranny at some point. And that's critical to remember. And it's not, it's not just that a leader should, that you should respect a leader because it benefits just you. It should be that that leader is beneficial to more than just you. That that, that, that leader is actually cares about those at the margins. In fact, we're going to talk about that some this morning. I know some of you are nervous, especially knowing who I am and kind of how I feel about the poor. You're thinking, man, this is going to be a long 40 minutes or so. I hope it's not, actually. And I hope that you're genuinely encouraged to think about why this is important because it's actually important to you because you, without Christ, were at the farthest margin. You were the poorest of all in this universe without Jesus. You are as bankrupt as you can possibly be. But we're not just talking about the spiritual. There is the tangible as well. And so that's important that we keep that in mind. And so as we turn to Psalm 72, what we're going to look at first in verses 1 through 11 is what is essentially, and we've talked about this in the book of Colossians, what essentially is the banks of the river. And it's a great way to kind of think about this. Uh, and that everything actually functions within the banks of that river. So we don't, we're not going to talk about compassion first. We're not going to talk about the love of the poor first because to jump there is actually to come off of the right foundation that is necessary to be able to actually help the poor and the weak and the needy, of which some of us are numbered. And so if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Psalm 72, verses 1 through 11. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, of of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you. While the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, 
what we see straight away in this psalm is that there is only one kind of verbal imperative. So whoever it is that wrote this psalm is crying out that this king would be given God's justice and righteousness and that that would serve as the foundation of all that he is. Now, we could have a very, very lengthy discussion about the meaning of the word justice and the meaning of the word righteousness, but for the sake of time, uh, I just want to give a couple of brief definitions, and these do provide the banks of the river for any sort of rain in God's name. Now, you do understand that the church is a governance of sorts in this world. We are a missional outpost, and so this is important to us as a church to consider how we think about these things, and that, that these would be the banks of the river, the foundational principles for us as a church as we seek to love those in this very fallen world. So first, let's talk about justice. So what is God's justice? What does it mean for God to be just? Well, it means that uh, we are judged according to the same standard. Right? And, and this is very important. In fact, Paul picks this up in part of his discussion in Romans chapter 9 when he says, all who are of Abraham are not of Abraham. So that would mean that if, if you were not born uh, of Abraham, if you're not Jewish, and you were not circumcised as a male, that there's no possible way you could be saved. Does that seem just to you? That where you were born essentially would render you out. That is not just. And it's also not just that if you're not born to the right family or if you're not born in the right country or under the right leader or if you are in any way, shape, or form kept from knowing that the Lord is God, creator of the universe. Now, you may say, well, what about the Aborigines? What about that lost Indian tribe off the coast of North Carolina? Well, here's the amazing thing about God. Everything, everything speaks to his presence. Romans chapter 1. All of creation proves that there is a creator. And it speaks to people. So there is, there is no one who is kept from knowing that there is a God who created all things. Now the finer points of theology... I don't know that you can look at a tree and go, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, uh, infralapsarianism, I see it in the bark. <laughs> no, I don't think you can do that. Uh, nor does creation necessarily point us to Christ. We need further revelation for that. We need the Word made flesh. However, uh, it is by faith alone that we are saved by grace alone. And so God is just in that he makes sure that there is no one, no one, who will in hell go, it's not fair. You never, ever, ever told me. See, we can rest easy knowing that the justice of God is such that everyone will hear. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. It's part of what we declared in John 3.16 that the whole world would know of Christ. And again, uh, just because you haven't gone to the Aborigines doesn't mean that he hasn't. And it also doesn't mean that just because you didn't make it, some part of your family didn't make it to the Aztecs, that someone didn't. Remember, the supernatural is natural to him. And there are ways in which he reaches people and loves them in ways that we do not. So, the first bank of the river is the justice of God in that everyone, everyone should have 
the opportunity to know him. And that his judgment would not be void of them having the opportunity to know him. Now, we are the hands and feet, right? We, the church, this is part of why we're talking about mission. We are called in the justice of God to make sure that those around us know the gospel. It is the missional heartbeat of God. And so that justice is good news to us. And I don't think we often think about God's justice in that way. And then righteousness on the other side. And again, that's a longer conversation. If you want to talk about that some more, there's all kind of thorny issues within that. There's even a book, Whose Justice, Which Rationality. Uh, and so there's a lot to that. But remember, we're talking about God's justice, not the myriads of justices that we've come up with throughout history. And then righteousness on the other side. Would it be fair if we had no earthly idea how to be reconciled? Right? So part, a major part of righteousness is for things to be made right. Now remember at the fall how deeply fractured we are. We are cut off from God because of our sin. We are cut off from each other because of our sin. We are cut off from creation itself because of our sin. And as many of you acutely may be feeling this morning, we are fractured inside. We actually are broken within ourselves. And this oftentimes manifests itself psychologically in a variety of ways. And so, would it be kind of God to say, all right, here's my justice, right? Uh, but I'm not going to tell you how to actually interact with me and be reconciled to each other. So the other bank of the river is not just that God is just, but that he is also righteous and that he gives a very clear uh, standard by which we can be reconciled to each other and interact with each other. And so what is that clear standard? What is it that every single one of us is called to be and do? Well, Christ said it when the lawyer said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And for those of you who are familiar with the Ten Commandments, the tables of the law actually break up into loving the Lord your God, the first three, and then the last six. And you may say, well, that comes out to nine, Cameron. I don't know about your math skills. Well, the Sabbath actually serves as the bridge between loving God and loving neighbor. Uh, and, and so it's part of it, but it actually does serves both purposes. And so God has given a very clear standard by which we can relate to him and be restored to each other, and be restored to creation, which occurs probably further in the, the greater tables of the law, and then be restored within ourselves. And so God in great grace. So oftentimes I think when we hear righteousness and justice, we automatically jump to all that's negative, right? We automatically kind of jump to not salvation. So please hear me. Salvation is the greatest display of God's justice and righteousness that we've ever seen. And so that's the banks of the river. So our compassion has to occur within the banks of that river between justice and righteousness because we could take up the cause of the poor in a manner that is actually terribly unbiblical. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first, many of you may have heard of liberation theology. So basically, liberation theology says if you were born a, a certain color or under a certain regime, you automatically are righteous. 
you automatically are, are worthy of great justice. And so therefore, your salvation is your skin color or your, your, um, who you were born to or what regime you're under. And there's no other requirement than your suffering. Your suffering has saved you, essentially. And therefore, any who uh, uh, have more than you have Need to be, it needs to be taken from them. This starts to sound a lot like socialism, if you've heard of such a thing. Many think that Christianity is socialistic, and it's really not at all. Now, you may be, if you're wicked like me, jump straight to Acts chapter 2 and 4 and say, but they had everything in common. That's not the same thing as they had everything equally, actually. And if you read that, you recognize that is actually not true. What they had in common was Christ, and then every need was met out of what they had. But it wasn't that everybody was rendered the same across the board. In fact, that's actually us playing God and deciding who is righteous and who is not. And so we're not actually loving the poor when we don't hold them to the standards of righteousness and justice. And having worked in the inner city, I can tell you um, there are sinners among the poor. And sinners among the weak and sinners among the needy. And for some of them, there is zero interest in seeing anything change. Um, and, 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 and not everyone wants your help. Not everyone wants to see their lives change. And so we've got to be careful that we don't render the poor automatically redeemed because of their poverty and not actually think through what they most need to be restored to the dignity of image bearing. I would commend two resources to you. The first is called Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton or Robert Lupton. He served in Grant Park in Atlanta uh, and is a deeply thought man uh, and has served among the poor for 40 some odd years. I think he just retired actually from uh, the organization that he worked for. Uh, and it's just brilliant in his insights about loving the poor well. And, had, and he's written a number of books. And the book that probably had an impact on me, I found it at a used bookstore in Podunk, Alabama somewhere called Theirs is the Kingdom. And uh, in that book, it, it, he, just the way he described uh, truly loving the poor transformed what I understood uh, and made me recognize that so often what we do is patronage as opposed to uh, as opposed to actually welcoming into the community to have their image bearing restored and their dignity restored and all that they're fractured from so they can truly be righteous. And then the other book is something, one you're probably very familiar with. It's called When Helping Hurts. And it's uh, Brian Fickard and the other guy. Uh, that I can't remember, but they serve at the Chalmers Center at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And they, too, have really thought some things through. Our diaconate is reading a slimmer portion of that so that what we do when we serve the poor is not just blindly uh, throw resources and not think through the full restoration of the person, which, by the way, if you serve among the poor, is a lot harder than it sounds. It's great on paper. But it is a lot messier when you get down into it. Trust me, I did it for 10 years at the rescue mission in Macon and then another uh, couple of years at Strong Tower. It, it, is, it is not as glorious as it looks. Sometimes all you hear are the success stories instead of all of the tragedy that goes with it. And so what I'm saying to us is that our compassion, our genuine love for the poor, which is God's heart, by the way, needs to be thoughtful and it needs to be informed and shaped by the scriptures. 
I think I'd shared with you a couple weeks ago that the sermon that I, that I could preach on that would make most people the maddest is on the Sabbath, and that's been true to date. The other sermon that, that made folks the maddest was not this church. It was another church. So people left was we preached a three-week three series on engaging the poor. And one of the things that I, I talked about, which is actually a Bob Lupton idea, is that there's a way in which our money can be uh, redeemed over and over. So when you hand money to a panhandler on the street, whatever redemptive value that dollar has ends as soon as they consume it. How are they consume it? Whether that's with uh, Irish Rose, if you know what that is, and you kids shouldn't know what that is, uh, or, uh, or hamburger, or whatever it is that they use it for, it ceases, its redemptive value is gone that fast, okay? And in most situations in the state of Georgia, this was particularly true in Macon, you could get two free meals a day uh, every single day of the week, and they weren't just like pimento cheese and bad water. It was actually legitimate, decent meals. So hunger was really not the issue in Macon. So I'm talking only about that context. This is true for lots of other contexts as well. So to give panhandlers money, was that the best way to love them and restore them to dignity in Macon, Georgia? The answer is no, it was not. Now, the better way was to give the, those same dollars that you feel compelled to give because everybody hates confrontation and every panhandling situation is a confrontation. Trust me, I've been in many of them. Uh, and so they, instead of giving it straight to the panhandler, give it to the people who are trying to change that, like the rescue mission, like a strong tower, because what's going to happen is that dollar is going to take multiple redemptive loops throughout that organization, and you get much more value for said dollar. Does that make sense? And so I preached on that, and some people just got mad as they could be and said this to me. If I want to give a crackhead a 20, I'm going to give him a 20. I don't care what he does with it. Now, that, that's fine. You're, you're free to do that. Does that sound biblical to any one of you? And can you think of a scripture that supports that thought? And is that actually image? Who's that really about? The person giving. It's not about the person receiving. I also had another man get really mad at me who had a different response, praise God, and he didn't leave the church. He's a mechanic, actually, and he was madder than a wet hen, and he told me so after the sermon. He said, I hated that sermon. I think I hate you. Uh, I said, well, it's fair. That's fair. Uh, but he came back to me the next week, and he said, you know, I've really thought about what you're saying. He said, I, I don't know. He said, well, I just, I'm scared. I just don't know how to help people really like I should. I'm a mechanic. I'm good at it. So why don't we do this? Why don't you triage and figure out who actually deserves the help? And I'll do one uh, major free job, uh, $1,000 or more, if, 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 you, if they're single. And he said, I want to do it for single moms. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do free oil changes for as much as they need it, but I'll, I'll donate a free major job, which we used a number of times. What a, what a brilliant thing that he did. And it was unbelievable what a blessing that it was that he used his gifts but he had to kind of fight through getting angry about being told he should love the poor and have to think about it and so for many of you that's really probably where you don't want to deal with the whole issues of justice and righteousness and try to think through uh, you just want to either do because I get it I've been confronted on the street in fact uh, when I first moved to Macon I had this guy come up to me he, he caught me outside of the Barnes and Noble Shocker that I was going to a bookstore, right? So he catches me and he goes, 
He goes, hey, man, I'm from Hawkinsville. I got five kids. Car broke down. You know, it was such a, he was just all up on me. And I was like, here's all the cash I have. Fine. And so he goes on, right? And then about a week later, my wife said, hey, this guy caught me outside of the post office. And he was from uh, Sandersville and had three kids. I was like, wait, wait, wait. What do you look like? And she told me, I was like, son of a gun. Uh, And so he got her too. And then some other friends of mine, uh, he had gotten as well. So I run into him a couple of months later, and he comes up, and he goes, and he starts to talk. I'm like, wait, 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 which town is it you're from, from Middle South Georgia? Because I've heard you're from Sandersville. I've heard you're from this town. I've heard you're from that town. I, I don't, and how many kids do you actually have? It seems to be a changing scale. And he looks at me and goes, listen, I'm not trying to go A to Z with you. I need $20. <laughs> and so, so I get it. For most of you, that's just, that is an extremely uncomfortable confrontation. Unfortunately for you, you live in the suburbs and you don't get run into too many times by panhandlers around here. Although there is actually a lady at Daily Grind and I was with my son the other day and she's been there a few times and she's always asking for for money for a friend of hers who's homeless, but she's buying stuff, which I think is odd. But uh, anyway, so she came up behind me and she, she did her spiel and I said, I've seen you in here before. Is this the same friend? And when is this actually going to get better? And you may be thinking, God, you're mean. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but, but again, from a righteousness perspective, is it okay for her to, to manipulate the people of God for her own gain? Is that ultimately a good thing? It isn't. And I get that many of you are not, you're not going to have that confrontation. It's okay. You don't have to. But I do want you to be thoughtful that you do need to have some sort of foundation for why you do what you do, because otherwise what you can do is end up seeing those who've been blessed by God as cursed. God loves to bless his people. Some of you he has blessed immensely in many ways, and that's great. And you have the opportunity to be generous because of how he's blessed you. Some of you, you, ain't good, you can't hardly make a dime to save your darn life, but you, you've got hands and feet, and you love serving the Lord. Amen. That's good, too. Not one is not necessarily better than the other. We needed all involved, and different people are called to different things. So I just wanted to say straight away so that we're clear, and the psalm is doing this. You must have a firm foundation before you can actually genuinely love the poor and the weak and the needy. And if you don't have the foundation that the Lord lays, all will not flourish. So you've got to declare somebody in and somebody out instead of being able to appreciate the fullness of what it is that God does in this world. And notice what he says of this king. He says, may this king, um, basically may there be enough for everyone. May the hills flow with what it is he has. And when it talks about rainfall, that's talking about God's provision. And we as the people of God should long for people to have God's provision, to have what they need to be able to flourish and worship the Lord their God. And that is truly righteousness and justice. And so, listen to what Derek Kidner says about this passage. He says, righteousness, in verses 1, 2, and 3, dominates this opening. Since in Scripture it is the first virtue of government, even before compassion, which will be the theme of verses 12 through 14, this point is made explicitly in the Mosaic Law, which forbids partiality in judgment, whether it favors, surprisingly, the poor or the rich. Exodus 23, 3 and 6. So please hear me. It is not a sin to be rich. 
In fact, Paul and Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, I believe it is, says, warn the rich. Not condemn the rich, just warn them. Make sure that they know that, that everything they have came from the Lord. And make sure that they know that they don't forget the poor. In fact, every, every government has been judged by this standard. If you read the Old Testament, you run into it again and again and again, right? That, that whether or not they, they, they actually lived out righteousness and justice, but the way in which they were judged was how they treated those furthest at the margins. And here's the deal. There is no righteousness and justice if we start further in, if we're not willing to take it all the way to the furthest margins, to those who are farthest from the Lord and have the least. Amen? So that is the litmus test, but we must begin with righteousness and justice as foundation. So if you would turn back to the text, and let's see the heart of the reign of God's king, the restoration of the poor. This is verses 12 through 20. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, uh, the, the hallmark, the canary in the coal mine, the litmus test for for. For God, as far as his people are concerned and governance is concerned, is how they treat the poor. It just is. And so uh, we, see, we saw it in Isaiah chapter 1, didn't we? He said, basically, look, you guys are doing all kind of worship stuff that, by the way, I told you to do, but it is trash if an ethic doesn't rise from it. If you don't love the widow and the orphan, if, if you, there's no tangible manifestation that you are, in fact, uh, uh, redeemed in righteousness and justice. And we could, we could take a survey of the Old Testament. Isaiah is filled with this, one of my favorite chapters that I've written on and preached on many times. Isaiah 58 makes it very clear. Uh, the book of Amos basically is an extended excoriation of the North Kingdom because of how they treat the poor. You, you can't read Zephaniah, Zechariah, you can't read any of the minor or major prophets and not find some moment where the government is being taken to task for how they treat the least of these. Unless you think that's just an Old Testament thing, do remember that Jesus in Matthew 25 separates the sheep and the goats on this fact alone. How we treat those who are imprisoned, naked, hungry, and without. And do remember that the sheep say the same thing the goats did. Lord, we didn't know it was you. Now, what's interesting about the sheep saying that, that what that means is they just did it because it was the thing that was supposed to be done. It was the ethic that should rise from our worship. It was just natural to them. 
or the sheep or the goats on the other side. They're like, well, I mean, Jesus, if we'd have known it was you, man, we'd have, we'd have rolled out the red carpet. I mean, so let a brother know. Tell us next time. But see, here's the problem. There is no next time. In that moment, because this is a moment of judgment. Warning to us on this side is judgment has not yet fallen in full. Uh, it's fallen for the righteous. But do remember, there's still yet another judgment to come where our deeds will be dealt with in some measure. So what we do in this life matters to the next. And we should do it not because, all right, I don't want God to be angry. That whole sheep and goat thing kind of freaks me out. I, I don't want to get tangled up in all that. So I'm just going to do some nice stuff for the poor uh, and just do the best I can. No, remember righteousness and justice. You can't, it's not a matter, it's not about you. You've been set free in Christ. Take and use what you have for those who are the furthest at the margins. And, and listen, this world is so filled with brokenness that it's, it's immediately overwhelming if you think about it. I, I just got a call yesterday from my friends at Strong Tower. Um, one of the women that Susan and I love dearly, um, she's drowning. She's drowning by her own hand. Now listen, a lot has happened to Ardelia in her life, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons why she should want to drown. But her kids, one of them just got busted breaking into somebody's house. He wasn't even smart enough to pull the hoodie over his face for the camera. And he just dressed like Zarek. It was clear to everyone who it was. Fortunately, so far, this family has not pressed charges. Because if they do press charges, his whole life is about to change. Once he has a felony, guess what kind of job he can get? None. And guess what he has to do if he wants to provide for himself and his family? More of the same. And so it is, it is even, that's a one by one mile square, by the way, and it is utterly overwhelming having been there. The city of Macon is only 100,000 people itself, and it is utterly overwhelming what goes on at the rescue mission and how great the need is. Not to mention, let's just get up here for a second and talk about Cobb County. Let's just break off a little piece of Marietta and try to get our heads around what goes on in some places around here. For those of you who've done Out of Darkness, uh, the, the issue of trafficking, all that goes on, it is, it is overwhelming, is it not? So where do we begin? See, like Francis Schaeffer said, I think we're oftentimes so guilty of wanting perfection that we end up doing nothing because we can't do it perfect, because it is overwhelming. But notice what the psalm says. Psalm 72 says, no, you have a hope, and you get to go in the power of that hope because as we sing, hail to the Lord's anointed, he reigns now. Though it doesn't look like it sometimes, we have power and ability in the Holy Spirit to see some things change, but it will take, it will take us suffering. Suffering on their behalf as Christ suffered on our behalf in many respects, not to the same extent because we will not have to suffer the cross, amen, or death, amen, as he did. And yet we've been empowered. What are we going to do with it? Notice that this king delivers the needy when he calls. Now, for many of us, we would love for, and if you're, like I said, if you're kind of wicked like me, you look at that and you go, I know some needy folks have cried out and ain't nobody came. Right? How about that family of 13 kids in California? The nut job parents who had them all chained up and let them take one shower a year. And if they wash their hands above 
their wrists, they were wasting water and were beaten and forced to march in circles. Why did it take so long, Lord? One of them's 29. How long, O Lord? And yet the thing that he would say back to us, but you are my hands and feet. Where are you at work in these things? And granted, we can't do it all. Please do not try to carry the weight of all of this. But we need to be doing something. And you are. For those who go to the extension, every month there is a proclamation that this is not the end. And this is not all there is for you. For those of you who serve at First Care Women's Clinic, landed it. You're doing amazing work to a group of people. I know you work at the YMCA as a mentor. How hard is it? Right? We, I think we talked a little bit about just starting with a middle school or a high schooler feels too far. It's too far gone almost. And yet, we need to take up our meager tools and trust that the Lord who reigns, the God of the supernatural that is natural to him and ought be more natural to us, is at work in this world because this is his king, this is his vision, this is his longing. And we can give glimpses of that in righteousness and justice. And so where more might we do, and again, we should pray, not go charging in as if we're armed with water pistols to the gates of hell but instead with wisdom and using the gifts that we have and being careful and thoughtful. Look at what Travis and Laura are doing. They're not saving all of Kenya. They're working in a very small geographic region in the Maasai. Now look at what they've accomplished. The Lord has accomplished in and through them. And yet Travis is funny. He says, I, just, I don't even feel like we're doing very much. He's very critical of even himself. And so... So what might it be that we could do as a church? What, what, what matters in this area? And, and, and what can we do in such a way that would actually help restore people's dignity? Because that's the king's longing for them. That's why it says, precious is their blood in his sight. So who do we know that's at the margins? Many of you serve in schools, uh, public schools, uh, Title I, et cetera, uh, that you're, you're encountering many at the margins every day. And so how can we as a church partner with and be part of those kind of things? Um, there's, there's many areas in which we, we can work and do, but our eyes have to be open. We have to ask the Spirit to show us, and he will. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. How might we get more involved? How might we reflect more the heart of this king? Because his mission is to the furthest margin. And never forget, as I said early in the sermon, we were most Apart from Christ, we were the most bankrupt of all, the poorest of the poor. And so the fact that he has redeemed us is for the purpose of serving him as king, and this is his heart. And notice what it says. It goes on to repeat much the same that it said at the beginning of the psalm, that there would be abundance of grain and land, always, always a sign uh, of, of the, the working of God, of his righteousness and justice, is that there is more than enough for everyone. And no one is left out. And so often, we work on a scarcity model. There's not enough, and I need to get as much as I can before Bitcoin blows up, or Korea blows something up, or China takes over, or Patriots win another Super Bowl, or whatever it is that you are scared to death of at this point. Right, And so, uh, so we work on a scarcity model. Our God does not. Our God does not. And we, we need to, to evidence his generosity with what we are willing to do. 
uh, and how far we're willing to go. Proverbs says it so beautifully that, that for you to, to discount the poor is actually to discount your maker. This is not, a, this is not an either-or proposition. This is not a, I'll take or leave it. It is, in fact, the canary in the coal is the litmus test of whether or not you are truly following this king, your care for the poor. So the question I have for you is this. And listen, it's a hard question. I get it. But what are your attitudes toward the poor, the weak, and the needy? Right? Is your first move to say, well, this is America. We, everybody got opportunities. No, I promise you, they don't. I, I worked uh, in Pleasant Hill, one by one mile square. They do not have the same opportunities that your kids have, not even close. And, uh, and, and, and so for us to say that kind of stuff is silly, actually. And it's, it is, it's patently unbiblical. Um, and so, so you, can't, you can't begin by blaming the victim because God didn't us. Now, are there some situations? I, I, I did a thing at Safe House Outreach, which is in Atlanta, and uh, they were some of the most hardcore homeless people I've ever seen. 20-year-plusers, they had no desire to come off the street at all, period. And so you, you literally, all you could do is feed them at best. You, couldn't, you really couldn't help them. They didn't want to change, many of them. But some of them did, and the beautiful thing about Safe House Outreach is that they were willing to work with, to restore the dignity. They said, hey, what are your goals and the people would come in and say, well, I'd like to live in an apartment. And they'd say, okay, here's, here's your credit situation. Here's what you got to do. Here's what it's going to take to get in it. Here's what it's going to do to stay in it. And they really, they called it problem solving. I loved the way they did what they did. Uh, um, but there were some who had no desire for that. Some people you can't help. And our job is to offer opportunity. It is not our job to change the heart. And so often you can't grow weary in doing good. Because I'm telling you, more will reject than receive because of the overarching nature of the principalities and powers of darkness and the systemic nature of much of this stuff. Generational poverty is incredible in its psychology. It, you, you very rarely meet a first-generation poor person uh, who has not had stuff ingrained in them that is, that, that is soul deep. And so, um, but you've got to first assess, what's your attitude? Do you blame the victim? Are you quick to say, uh, you know, we can't help everybody? I mean, I, they need to go find let, let some of those other Arabs who've got all that money help them if they care so much about them. We will either feed and educate them today or fight them tomorrow with guns in some measure. And we've got plenty. And there's ways in which we need to be smart about it. So do not hear me. I, I've got challenged before when I've mentioned refugees in here. Uh, the person who challenged me is not here today, so I won't get the second challenge. But... They said, oh, are you saying just fling wide the gates? I said, no, that's unthinking. In fact, what we're seeing with many of the refugees throughout Europe, in fact, is that the fact that they've stuck them on these little plots of land in a bunch of tents with nothing to do is reducing their dignity. And so, yes, they are turning to crime. You would, too, with nothing to do all day and no way to change your situation. So there's ways in which we need to think about it completely different. And we can. We do. We have the resources. We've got the brain power. We just choose not to do it because it's hard. But even more important than, than, than the way you think about the poor is what Bible verses or biblical principles are shaping your attitude. Because if your attitude is not being shaped by the Bible, I can assure you it's being shaped by the darkness. 
in one way or the other. And this is where you got to be careful. I think that's why the banks of the river are so important, the issue of justice and righteousness. And these are ongoing conversations. This is not something that you'll just rubber stamp and kind of move on from. It's something we have to continue, we have to wrestle with. And every situation is different and requires creativity and thought. And what works for one person may not work for another. And we, that's what's so beautiful about the Spirit is it allows us to be so fluid and creative. If we would but think and get involved and pray and be willing to submit to the king whose heart is for the poor and the weak and the needy and he will call the oppressor to judgment someday. Now listen to what Donald Williams says about this portion of the text. He says, Jesus loved the poor. He just did. He came to preach the good news to them. He delivered them from the oppression of legalistic religion. Did did you Pharisees know how poor and bereft of the gospel you are? And satanic domination, he healed their bodies, he saved their souls, and redeemed them at the price of his own blood. He then is the king of whom the psalmist speaks. He also calls us to live this kingdom life, ministering to the poor on his behalf. Remember, we are the hands and feet of the gospel. We are the parts of the body for whom the king is head. And when we don't act, when we don't participate, we're actually impoverishing ourselves in our faith and failing to be able to see how good our God really is and how deep his love and how profound is his redemption in this world. So it is we who oftentimes suffer poverty as a result. So what do we learn from Psalm 72? Well, it teaches us that God's king will reign founded on true justice and righteousness that brings blessing and peace to all and that this God's king will share his heart for restoring the image-bearing dignity of the poor, weak, and needy. And what's so beautiful about God is that he continues to nourish our faith, that he doesn't say, all right, here's kind of your your walking papers, now go and do I'm going to rest. I'm tired. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm going to hang out in the back of the universe. No, what does the Great Commission say that Jesus would be? He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And how else did he make sure that we would have everything that we needed? He granted us the Holy Spirit, something we don't talk enough about or think enough about. And he gave us his word to remind us of his goodness and his heart and the clarity and the beauty of redemption and the gospel. And he gave us each other to encourage one another, to to build each other up. But so often we're just talking about the banal instead of actually uh, building each other up and praying for one another and calling each other to good works, as Hebrews tells us to do. And he gave us his sacraments, a word made visible so that we would be nourished for the journey. 